Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode number 19 on pediatric abdominal pain, we have with us Dr. Anna Jarvis and Dr. Stephen Friedman. Dr. Jarvis was an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto from 1997 to 2010. She's a full professor at the University of Toronto and the Associate Dean of the Office of Health Professions Student Affairs. She also created, implemented, and supervised the Department of Pediatrics Clinical Fellowship Program in Pediatric Emergency Medicine for 13 years. Dr. Stephen Friedman is an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He completed his Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship in Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago and a Master of Science in Clinical Investigation in Northwestern University. He's a clinician investigator in the Division of Emergency Medicine at U of T and an associate scientist in Child Health Evaluative Sciences. With the gastro season upon us here in Canada, you'll be seeing oodles of kids with GI symptoms. And so we need to develop our eagle eye perspective for picking out those kids with belly pain, vomiting, and or diarrhea who have an alternate, more serious diagnosis, such as a surgically correctable lesion. Searching for a surgically correctable lesion in kids who present to the ED with abdominal pain is like searching for a needle in a haystack. Only 1-2% to of kids who present with abdominal pain have a surgical diagnosis, yet these conditions are the ones that if not picked up and managed appropriately in the ED can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. Children with so-called classic gastroenteritis presentations can actually end up having a perforated appendix, while those with significantly tender bellies may have pneumonia, strep throat, or DKA. Why is this so difficult? Similar to the way adults often express their general malaise with a complaint of headache, when some children feel ill, as all us parents know very well, they often express their malaise as a bellyache, and when a toddler complains of a tummy ache, we don't expect them to be able to convey any more detail than that. Sometimes we see children who present with altered mental status and appear septic, but who are later found out to have intussusception. And of course, there's a whole grab basket of really rare causes of abdominal pain, like the dreaded rupture of a splenic hematoma. We're not going to talk about splenic hematomas and other rare zebras today. Instead, we're going to get into the nuances of diagnosis and management of some of the most common diagnoses in kids who present to the ED with abdopain, and also some of the not-so-common but potentially deadly causes. With the help of Dr. Anna Jarvis, one of Canada's mothers of modern pediatric emergency medicine, who's practiced for more than 35 years, and whom the University of Toronto has even named an award after, the Anna Jarvis Award, and Dr. Stephen Friedman, one of the most important researchers in pediatric GI emergencies, will cover vast territories in the land of pediatric emergency abdopain, and talk about the pearls, pitfalls, and controversies of everything from gastroenteritis to midgut volvulus. Our first case is that of a 7-year-old boy who presents to your ED at 9 p.m. with a history of diarrhea and fever for two days, as well as vague abdominal pain. On further questioning, he has no travel history, his immunizations are up to date, there's no known viral contacts, and he's otherwise healthy on no medications. He vomited once that morning, has no urinary symptoms, no URI symptoms, or rash. On exam, his vital signs are normal except for a temp of 38.1. His abdomen is soft with slight diffuse tenderness and no peritoneal signs. The rest of his exam is normal. A urine dip is normal. A stool for CNS is sent off. The boy is rehydrated with Pedialyte in the ED 
and a diagnosis of gastroenteritis is made. The patient's sent home with the usual gastro instructions. The next day, he returns with increased abdominal pain. On exam, he's found to have rebound tenderness in the right lower quadrant, and on ultrasound, he is shown to have appendicitis. So Dr. Jarvis, everyone who's practiced emergency medicine for a few years has seen or heard about a case similar to this one, yet we continue to see cases like this again and again. This brings up the question, how good are we in general at diagnosing appendicitis in kids in the ED, and why is it so important for us to pick up the diagnosis as early as possible? You know, Dr. Hellman, you've picked one of the most difficult diagnostic conditions to focus on today. And I always like by reassuring folks that if I was asked to review this chart, I would commend this physician of having done more than we usually do. Because quite frankly, in a seven-year-old with no travel history, no recent antibiotics, most of us would not have cultured the stool. And we certainly would not have dipped his urine if he was voiding in a normal pattern. So let me start with a reassurance before I get in to the fact that we are, I would say, almost hopeless at diagnosing appendicitis accurately in younger children. You read different things in the literature. Some people say every appendix under two years of age is ruptured when you pick it up. Um, Other people say under three or four. It really depends on the clinical acumen of the team assessing the child. And also your populations. Why do I say populations? Toronto is one of the most internationally diverse cities in the world. There was a recent large study on over 800 consecutive autopsies published from Nigeria, one of the most populous countries in Africa. And they found well over 60% of their population has retrocecal appendices. Therefore, their presentations of appendicitis tend to be more on the colonic irritation stage, and they have more diarrhea. So again, let me say, it's difficult. It's difficult because the diverse population, the anatomy may be different, the way they display and complain about pain may be different. You're quite right. Um, If mummy gets tummy aches, the toddler has tummy aches when they want attention. If mummy gets headaches, they may say their head hurts when it's an appendicitis. That's a reality. And it's up to us to see if the complaint matches the way the child is behaving. So it's very difficult. There are challenges with the stage you see them at. It's not very popular these days to talk about chronic appendicitis. But over the years, one thing I have learned is to say humbly to parents who are worried about abdominal pain, you don't need to see a surgeon today. If this is early appendicitis, no harm done. Watch carefully for, then I spell it out in terms they can understand and ask them to come back. Result, 
many happy families who've come back and said to me, you told us to come back, here we are. And at that time, I've been able to make the diagnosis. So instead of being mad, they're happy with me. I like to share that kind of positive information with particularly young practitioners. I don't want you to be scared. Most of the kids with diarrhea and one vomit have gastroenteritis. Let's not over-investigate them. Okay, so Dr. Jarvis, you had mentioned that the perforation is very high in the very young, under two, under three, under four. Yes. And that's partly because this is such a tough diagnosis to make in that age. Can you review for us the first the typical presentation of appendicitis in kids? And since we know that the atypical presentations are more often missed, leading to the higher rupture rate, some of the atypical presentations that we should look out for. Absolutely. When we say typical, there's very, very little typical in children less than five years of age. I want to make that clear. It's typically atypical. (laughs) Correct. Now, the things that say to me this could be appendicitis are the child who complains of abdominal pain. Many children cannot tell you where it started. If they're an active sports person, they may say, I pulled a muscle at soccer or at hockey, and they put their own explanation because they don't want to get off the field or the rink. They keep going. They will not stop. So you rarely get the straight history of pain. And I often have to ask, do you play any sports? Did you have to take a rest? Then I get the real history of when the pain started. So that's the first thing. They do have pain, but the interpretation of which part of the abdomen was hurt first may be extremely vague. In your adolescent girls, they frequently put it down to metal smirch, if that's a problem for them, or perimenstrual disorders. So once there's menstruation in the picture, again, that's a challenge. But abdominal pain of some sort is present in almost every single case if you tease it out and look for it. Fever. You know... Acetaminophen is so easily obtained that it's very difficult to pin down if they really had a fever or not. Classically, they say a low-grade temperature. Now, our most busy parents take the temperature by touching the forehead. So low-grade temperatures are missed. Look out for that. Ask the child, were you feeling warm? Did you feel chilly? Did you find your bedroom was stuffy last night? That often says to me there was a low-grade fever. Next thing, movement of the pain to the right lower quadrant. I have almost never heard this description in a child less than 10 years of age. What do you think? I would probably concur completely with that comment. It's a very challenging. 
Often it also sometimes just starts right lower quadrant, stays there. Sometimes it stays periumbilical, such as the example that you said, even when you examine them. And as Dr. Jairus was talking, I was thinking more of even the three and four year old child where fever, I mean, often they just come in with fever for four, five, six days often. And when you examine them, they're fussy, they're irritable. And often the residents and medical students will say, I couldn't really examine their abdomen, but I think it was okay. Sometimes when you go in and you examine the abdomen, it's actually hard to determine where it hurts or even how much they don't like you versus don't like you touching their abdomen. But in someone who's had fever for four or five days, especially when the fever comes down a little bit in the emergency, and that's persistently their behavior, that to me is a huge red flag of them just coming in. When my walking in, they're breaking out in tears and crying at three years of age. And um, I know that there's something that they know that I'm going to do that's going to hurt them. Right. So we're in the adult, the description of periumbilical or vague abdominal pain that then might that then locates to the right lower quadrant has one of the highest positive likelihood ratios for ruling in appendicitis and so in kids you can sort of throw that one right out the window uh, unless you're lucky enough to get that history that's right you're lucky if you get it the other big symptom of course is anorexia now there have been some well done studies that say that anorexia occurs in a maximum of 60% of children. However, how do you ask the question? My first question is, especially for the younger ones, who usually feeds this child? You see, unless the child is refusing all feeds, the babysitter isn't going to tell the parents. So when the child is fussy or warm in the middle of the night, the poor parents don't have a clue. Let's be honest. There are lots of families these days where both parents are working full out and you don't get this detailed report when you collect your children from the sitter or you come home to your home and the nanny hands over, hands off for the evening. Up to 60% there'll be some anorexia if you search for it. I continue to think about how hard it is to diagnose and two quick examples pop into my head of kids that either I or colleagues of mine have seen recently. And they're, they're their typical child who's four to five years of age, who's had fevers for ongoing for four or five days and some just mild abdominal pain, completely unimpressive exams. And actually we're seeing twice at different institutions, including at our own. And then, you know, on the third visit of persistent fever, their exams are still actually benign, just some mild tenderness, they will jump. And one of the other things that surgeons say, oh, if they'll jump and keep jumping and smiling, they can't have appendicitis. Well, you know, some of these children would jump and jump happily, but the ultrasounds and operations were positive for appendicitis. And even kind of having known the ultrasound result, you go back and examine the abdomen, I'm like, you must be tender right over there. And they're like, a little. So, so that just really emphasizes how challenging it can be in these kids. And sometimes the kids know what's going to happen if they say it hurts or yes. And kids want to go home from the emergency department, not stay in the hospital. They don't want the IV. They don't want the blood tests. And so sometimes that factors into a lot of the answers that you actually get. They're actually very smart, those young ones. Mm -hmm. So one of the teaching pearls in adults for appendicitis is that most often the pain starts before the vomiting does. How is that different in the little kids? Quite frankly, it's almost impossible to decide when the pain starts in the younger kids. Older kids, I would concur completely. If you have anyone with a, a normal talkative 
nine plus year old that if you really pin them down, they can tell you when the pain started. Some of them will even say that they just weren't feeling hungry or weren't feeling right. That's how they describe the early onset. And then the pain started, then the vomiting. Uh, with parents so anxious about their children and schools being totally intolerant of anyone with any complaints these days, I find people are coming in sometimes too early. The earlier they come in, the more confusing it gets. I find that with few exceptions, the child who is healthy, immune, intact, appendicitis unfolds. It unfolds over 6 to 36 hours. You see them very early, it's atypical. The one thing that I also think about when we talk about really sudden onset or really rapidly evolving abdominal pain and vomiting, actually, particularly in girls, though, is ovarian torsion. And I think we forget about that. And if we actually, if you do ultimately go to imaging, it's important that they're adequately prepared. So both the radiologists are aware that you're thinking of ovarian torsion, particularly in teenage girls, um, and that their bladders are full. Otherwise, they don't, they can't see the ovaries. And so that's kind of one of my routines with an adolescent girl who's got lower abdominal pain is that I make sure we're ruling out ovarian torsion, particularly in the scenario that Dr. Jarvis is describing of vomiting, abdominal pain starting very simultaneously. And it's a very important entity because actually their time is ovaries. So Dr. Friedman, we've talked about the very early presenters. What about the later presenters? You know, since most kids under two years of age will present with a ruptured appendix, it's important for us to know what features of the clinical presentation suggest a ruptured or perforated appendix. What are some of the features of a patient who would present with their appendix already ruptured? So some of the main things that we see, it's actually always a challenging diagnosis, but it's often a younger child, usually under five to six years of age is the classic one, although it occurs still in adolescence as well. And they usually have high fevers. So it's not the low grade, you know, tactile 37.538. It's often 39, 39.5. And often it starts off much lower at the start of the illness, more like typical appendicitis. And the last couple of days get higher. The child gets fussier. Uh, and I think they do develop more anorexia. Maybe Dr. Jarvis can comment, but I find they eat less um, at that point in time. And they're very, very fussy children. And the key thing that really kind of tips me off that it's not just a typical virus is actually to develop the diarrhea at that point. So fevers are getting higher. Diarrhea starting on day three, four, five of the fever and progressively uh, unwell, according to the parents usually too. And they're usually very, very irritable when you go in the room. And often you can't really localize anything on your clinical exam except that their belly seems to hurt. And, you know, I don't believe I can walk out of the room and say, oh, he had right lower quadrant tenderness. Um, I walk out of the room and say, he had peritonitis. I don't know exactly what it's from sometimes, but my assumption is when I walk out of the room, that's a perforated appendix till proven otherwise usually. I agree with what Dr. Friedman's saying, with one exception. Some children present with a walled off abscess. And if there's an abscess, there may be a tender mass in the abdomen. If you're very, very careful, what I have done with many younger children is say, why don't you push on your tummy and show me where it's soft and where is the owie. And 
Sometimes small kids who are distractible will play that game with you. And they will push much harder than they tolerate me pushing on the left side. But they come to the right and they are not pushing at all. So sometimes I will then percuss, right? And percuss that there's a mass. But Dr. Friedman's absolutely correct. The younger the child, the more likely it is to be sepsis generalized peritonitis. There is an in-between age, though, uh, in those preschool kids and young school age years where there might be a mass. And then you can say, there's a tender mass. Yeah, we actually just had a, a case a few weeks ago of a 12-year-old girl who had presented with what sounded like a gastro, was sent home, just like this patient we're talking about, came back the next day, and they suspected a bowel obstruction. They did an x-ray. It showed an obvious bowel obstruction. And what was the diagnosis in the end? It was a ruptured appendix with an 8-centimeter abscess that had then secondarily caused a bowel obstruction. I think I saw that child got transferred out to sick kids, actually, and I took care of them down there at sick kids. Oh, did and, you? <laughs> and yes, yeah, so initially the x-rays and imaging was impressive, but actually before that I, I saw and examined the child, and the child had peritonitis um, on clinical exam, but no history of prior surgery, no signs of a hernia, which really makes a primary bowel obstruction very, very unlikely in a child. And given the history, I believe there was fever as well, and I will say, having walked out of the room, I said he has perforated appendix until proven otherwise. It's still my working diagnosis with a secondary ileus, which is a common feature that we see. Just on another note to comment with uh, what Dr. Jarvis was saying is percussion to me is probably one of the most useful elements in examining the abdomen of the young child. I find the before I do palpation, I percuss. And if they, and I start off usually on the left side, um, and I really try to compare quadrants. But, you know, if they're having a little tenderness on the left side, I'm like, huh. But when I get to the right lower quadrant and I give them the same percussion, they will often, you watch their face. Um, if they have appendicitis, not 100%, but the more the perforated ones, the more clinically apparent ones. I don't need the palpation necessarily. That's enough for me to know that that's where I'm headed. Are there any other physical examination pearls? I mean, we all know how difficult it is to examine kids' bellies. Give us all your pearls, Dr. Jarvis. <laughs> we'll be here a while. <laughs> uh, uh, the first thing is not to make the child cry. And I asked the parents, or I asked the younger child, would they prefer to be in mom or dad's lap? Or sometimes grandma, nona, is the person, boba, whoever, you know, who they can choose, right? Who they'd like to be in. And they show me how they like to cuddle, the position they're in. I then ask the child if they'll touch their tummy and just see what they're doing. A six-year-old who literally pushes their umbilicus back to their backbone is highly unlikely to have anything going on in there that's surgical. I asked the parents to gently touch the abdomen with the clothes on. The children know doctors. If they undress, there's bad news. So with the clothes on. Next thing, I have always allowed parents to lie on the bed. I find two-year-olds will lie with mommy on the bed and not cry. 
or even lie on mommy. And that works for me. They, they cannot cry. They're apprehensive. You're lost. Then I start at the ankles and I roll the legs and I see if they're guarding or flexing at the hip. And many people don't take the time. I know we're busy in emergency, but thank goodness I've managed to stay out of court throughout my practice. And this is because taking time, if I miss something, the families always say I spent time and I tried. It's amazing. They've got to feel you've invested in their child. So roll the hips, examine the chest, don't touch the abdomen after they've lie, they're lying down, ask them to sit up, watch how they sit up, do they roll up like an injured person protecting the side or do they jump up in the normal way a young child does, ask them if you may listen to their chest, I percuss the back of the chest down the loin so that they're used to percussion. Get them to take the biggest breath. You might say, now blow out a hundred birthday candles. See if they can really lower the diaphragm. You can't go in the orderly, look, feel, percuss, auscultate. Throw that away. You do things in the order that the child is comfortable and they allow you to do. If a child is very apprehensive about going on the bed, once the parents have shown me where might be hurting, I get the child to cuddle the parent, facing the parent, have the parent stand up. I sneak my hands around from the back, tickle them under the arms, feel from the nipple line down, and gently play the piano on their tummies and see where it hurts. And I find often from the back, with their knees flexed around mom or dad's waist, you have a relaxed abdomen. So those are just some hints. Wow, we certainly haven't lost the art of medicine. You know, in, in this era of, in, at least in adults, scanning every patient with belly pain that walks in the department, this is a great lesson and reminder of how important the physical exam is and how important it is to take time with a physical exam. I'm just going to stop for a minute here to review some of the key pearls about the history and physical and highlight some of the things that our guest experts have talked about. First in the history, typical is atypical. So the atypical features that increase the likelihood of a misdiagnosis include abdominal pain in a different location, diarrhea, respiratory symptoms, usually because they're acidotic, an abdominal pain severity, which is mild or minimal, or a good appetite or absence of fever. These can all be misleading, and certainly you can have appendicitis when all of these are present. In patients with retrocecal appendicitis, who constitute about 15% of cases, signs and symptoms may not localize to the right lower quadrant at all, but instead localize to the psoas muscle or the back. If the appendix perforates, an interval of pain relief is followed by development of generalized abdominal pain and peritonitis. One pearl is that Usually pain happens before vomiting, and that has a high sensitivity for appendicitis in adults. However, in the preschool child, vomiting may precede abdominal pain just because they can't communicate that they have their abdominal pain. When a child has perforated their appendix, that's actually often when the diarrhea can occur, and that's when the temperature begins to go higher and higher. 
Vomiting occurs more often in children than it does in adults with appendicitis and tends to get worse and worse with time. So that's the history. How about the physical examination in kids with appendicitis? First, when you walk into the room, a child with appendicitis is usually lying still with their hips flexed rather than writhing in pain like a child with intussusception, for example. Examine the child in the parent's lap or lying down on the stretcher next to the parent or even on top of the parent with the clothes on at first. Before you palpate, percuss the abdomen. Percussion might actually get you more information than palpation. Ask the child to palpate the abdomen themselves or ask the parent to palpate the abdomen. Ask the child to blow out as hard as they can to see if they're able to lower their diaphragm or not. Watch how they sit up and if they're guarding when they do. Another useful maneuver for infants and young children is to have the parent bounce the child up and down, similar to an older child jumping. A happy and interactive child suggests the absence of peritonitis, while fussiness with this remover should raise a suspicion of peritonitis and appendicitis. And don't forget to examine the genitals in all children who present with belly pain. They may be too embarrassed to tell you about their scrotal pain, and you definitely don't want to miss a testicular torsion. Next, we're going to be talking about the utility of lab tests in the diagnosis of pediatric appendicitis. Dr. Friedman, despite its ubiquity, we know that leukocytosis in young children is rather nonspecific and fairly insensitive for appendicitis, and probably for helping us determine if there's any serious life-threatening causes of abdominal pain, because it's often elevated in gastroenteritis, for example. What is the value, if any, in obtaining a CBC for pediatric patients who present with belly pain? Generally speaking, I teach people not to rely on your CBC or your white count to help you make a decision in isolation regarding concern of if your patient has appendicitis or not. For example, approximately 25% of kids who have gastroenteritis indeed actually have an elevated white count. So, so it, there's a lot of overlap in that realm. And in fact, if you look at appendicitis, while many of them, or slightly more than 50%, usually have an increased white count as well as a left shift, some studies find that up to 30 40% do not have that. So to use that in isolation, you are going to miss a significant number of children. Having said that, as time goes on, as they have symptoms for longer periods of time, there does tend to be a gradual shift towards the vast majority having an elevated white count. I'll confess I haven't seen studies about children with perforated appendicitis, but from my experience, and Dr. Jarvis can comment, the children who have perforated appendicitis with symptoms three or four days often, almost always, I would say, have white counts, and I find usually greater than 20,000 as a total white count with a significant left shift. Completely agree with that finding, and it makes sense because even in adults, acidosis, dehydration, and infection, right, generalized infection, peritonitis, lead to an elevated white count. Um, children tend to get acidotic very early. In fact, by four hours of starvation, many younger children are spilling ketones in their urine. So imagine if they've gone 24, 36 hours with poor intake and an infection brewing, then it's to be expected that the white count would be high. Mm -hmm. So that brings us back to the early presenters. They're the ones who are most likely to have a normal white count. Okay, so like most things in medicine, we can't hang our hat on one thing. It's one piece of the puzzle. So we've talked about the white count. 
What about inflammatory markers like CRP or ESR? I know there's been a whole bunch of studies in kids with appendicitis that have sort of mixed results of whether CRP or ESR can help rule out appendicitis. What's your take on using inflammatory markers for appendicitis in kids? You know, it's one of those topics of debate. Uh, Many of my colleagues, I do know, order inflammatory markers. I personally do not because I don't feel it actually helps clarify the situation for me, particularly because, generally speaking, my decision to obtain further investigations, particularly diagnostic imaging, will have been based upon my history and physical examination. And that's primarily because, similar to the white count and the left side, the, the neutrophil count, the negative likelihood ratios for normal CRPs, normal ESRs, normal white counts, even if you combine all of those as being normal, are still not good enough to significantly, dramatically lower the probability of appendicitis if your pretest probability was high enough to begin with. We don't have a magic bullet. There is no one good predictive test. It really is a matter of serial, slow, careful examinations. Mm -hmm. That brings up... If you're doing serial examinations and you're observing the child for a while in the emergency department, is there any value in repeating the blood work four, six, ten hours later? Is that going to help you to make your decision? In children who have a more equivocal initial evaluation, meaning if they ultimately go on to ultrasound and it's either equivocal or appendix not visualized, and their exam was concerning enough initially, we will often kind of re-examine them. It seems it's always the next morning. There is probably some value in repeating the CBC about probably, I would guess, about 12 hours later. If you look at some of the studies that have looked at timelines, there does tend to be a gradual rise in the inflammatory markers and the white count. Exactly how long is long enough to change a normal white count to an abnormal one? It's unclear. But having said that, even if you were to see somewhat of a rise in your white count, one's still going to need to see probably a more concerning physical examination or repeat imaging, which is usually what we do. So often I would say I would get a repeat ultrasound in the morning as opposed to a repeat CBC, because generally speaking, we have a daytime technician who can be dedicated to looking for that appendix and finding it. And if it actually is early appendicitis, by that point in time, there should be more signs of appendicitis on ultrasound, including an inflamed enlarged appendix. So that's the CBC and inflammatory markers. How about the urinalysis? First, Dr. Jarvis, could you explain to us, in general, for patients who present with abdominal pain, the value of urinalysis, and then in particular with appendicitis, what the value of a urinalysis would be? Urinalysis is extremely important. And the more doubt there is about your diagnosis at the end of your history and uh, physical exam, the urinalysis is something that's key. In febrile kids under the age of two years, urinary tract infection is one of the most common bacterial infections. So you need to look at the urinalysis properly obtained, either a clean catch as a screen for urinalysis, and if positive, if you're not 100% certain about the child's clean catch, you need a catheter specimen in these younger children for your culture. So uh, urinalysis is high up there. Second reason, the child who comes with a concerning, my abdomen hurts, they're a little uh, dry, 
but the history doesn't make sense and there's no focal tenderness. Diabetic ketoacidosis is one of those differentials not to be missed, not ever to be missed, quite frankly. So that's important. You want to know if there's any glucose in the urine. In some children who come more with lethargy and non-specific abdominal pain, a lot of ketones with no glucose. I often do a bedside glucose measurement because we do see with viral illness the uncovering of some inborn errors of metabolism. Luckily, since the Ontario-wide newborn screening program, we're seeing less of these present during routine viral illnesses as profound hypoglycemia. But again, we're in an international community. We have children who were not born in Canada, who were not tested at birth, and unfortunately, in any screening program, occasionally someone slips through the cracks. So checking that urine is really important. Does it confuse you? It can. Sometimes there are a few red cells. Sometimes there are a few white cells. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate because every hospital has its own standard and they vary by age. Is it more than six? Is it more than 20? Is it more than 40? I'm going to ask Dr. Friedman to comment on this because this is a controversial area. But... No squigglies, no little bacteria, right? Uh, oh, just a few red cells or a few white cells. You still have appendicitis on your diagnosis. That's not a clear urinary tract infection. I would say that you would see that with even viral illness. Mm -hmm. You can get small amounts of white cells, red cells. I mean, even in active children, uh, Dr. Jarvis was talking about the athlete before, you'll get some hematuria just from running around um, in some children in particular. So I don't get too distracted by, by trace amounts of either of those. When you start getting into small on your dipstick or larger, or if you have an automated one that will actually give you units, then I do get a little bit more concerned that this could be a urinary tract infection. It does, as Dr. Jarvis was saying, muddy the waters and make your clinical decision-making a little bit more challenging. But I would not call trace leukocytes a UTI in a child unless they're very symptomatic from a dysuria frequency nocturia point of view. So I really kind of go back and put it in the context of the child who's in front of me is really a key element there. Mm -hmm. yeah, in, the, in the elderly, one of the big pitfalls is getting a urinalysis on an elderly patient who's complaining of belly pain or has a fever and they have a few white cells and, you know, elderly patients can be asymptomatic with their urinary tract infection. So you label them as a urinary tract infection and send them home with their Cipro or whatever. And they come back the next day with some disaster. So sometimes, I, you know, I like to make the, the analogy the elderly and kids are kind of similar in that way. So with appendicitis in particular, you certainly can find some pyuria, but that should be in the absence of any bacteria. Can I agree with that and point out that yes, um, young kids are like the elderly, couldn't agree more, but remember it's really the children under three months of age who have been documented to have genuine urinary tract infections with few white cells. 
So uh, for the after three months of age, any child who has an abnormal immune system should really be passing cloudy urine, sheets of white cells. It should be strongly positive. It's where you have a viral infection or you have early appendicitis or retrocecal or retroureteral appendix and you're seeing 20, 30, right? But no bacteria. Those are the ones I'm more concerned about. Just on the topic of urine and uh, teenagers is always to remember pregnancy as well. So that's another thing that's in our differential diagnosis and another important test to do in the adolescent girl with abdominal pain. Absolutely. You know, there's a wide variety of practice throughout the Western world when it comes to whether or not and how to best manage a pediatric patient suspected of having appendicitis. To give you an idea of this variation in practice, here's an excerpt from one of the BMJ Journal's best practice papers called Management of Suspected Appendicitis in Children from last year. Quote, a patient who presents with classical signs and symptoms of appendicitis and is assessed by an experienced surgeon generally does not require any radiological investigation. The difficulty arises in the presentations that are nonspecific or atypical. Do we observe these patients? Do we request radiological tests to aid in our diagnosis? Or do we rely on the surgeons to operate? In the UK, a patient with suspected appendicitis is admitted under the pediatric surgeons. If the presentation is equivocal, atypical, and in a female, they generally will request an ultrasound. Otherwise, periods of observation are undertaken. This is in stark contrast to North American practice, which uses much more imaging and increased assessment in the emergency department. So, Dr. Jarvis, you've been practicing pediatric emergency medicine now since before the days of CT and ultrasound, and you've seen the evolution of practice. What is your take on the role of imaging in general in kids who you suspect might have appendicitis? We do too much imaging, and I'm terrified that we are going to end up with a whole generation prone to cancer because of overuse of CTs and CT with contrast. I really get very angry when I see colleagues who are not taking the time to do an adequate history and physical exam and talk to the families, talk to your patient. We never saw that number or percentage of disasters prior to these investigations. We did take out more clean appendix, right? So it comes down to what risk do you tolerate. In this day and age of laparoscopic surgery, I think the rate of negative appendicide, appendectomy is very low. If I have a teenage girl who has a really good probability of appendicitis, I believe she should have a visit to the operating room. I cannot afford for our reproductive age group having a ruptured appendix and possible future infertility. Our surgeons are very happy 
if clinically we are absolutely convinced to come and see the patients and make a decision with us. So we would agree with the Brits. If it's clearly clinically a probable appendix, go for it. Because we have laparoscopy, you can take a peek. Appendix is clean. It's mesenteric adenitis or something else. Come out, leave the appendix. I may actually have to defer with you there a little bit, Dr. Jarvis. These surgeons, I will say, there's been somewhat of an evolution, I think, in their perception of appendicitis. Number one, even as a quote-unquote surgical emergency, there's emerging literature of limited quality, I would say, showing that actually they don't have to operate on appendixes at night. And that delaying actually an extra 12 hours and giving antibiotics is not going to result in increased risk of perforation. I'm not saying the literature is correct, but that's the literature. Some of that is coming out, although other articles come out to the contrary. And it actually is increasingly challenging to have a staff surgeon in a tertiary care center evaluate the child during the day. While I will say our chief of surgery does say that they are willing to take particularly males teenagers with classic stories to the operating room without imaging. That is rarely the case when the calls go through to the fellows who are often very busy and they're actually unavailable for six hours at times. So there's a long delay in that process. So in principle, I would say at present, at least at our center, the surgeons are willing to take the typical males in particular to the operating room if they have a classic history presentation exam for appendicitis. Females, they pretty much always insist on imaging to look for ovarian pathology, such as just a cyst, for example, versus torsion or other things. But the differential is a little bit wider in the female patient. But the logistical challenges in a complex tertiary care center are actually probably one of the barriers to it. And actually, I wonder if it's even done better at some of the more community hospitals where you get a direct call to a surgeon who available during the daytime might be in the hospital and able and willing to come and evaluate and lay their hands on the patient. Well, Dr. Friedman has highlighted a big controversy in practice. I will say that at an annual uh, Canadian Pediatric Society meeting, Dr. Jeffrey Blair, Chief of Surgery at the uh, British Columbia Children's Hospital, gave the keynote at surgical address to the pediatricians. And I thought it was a very brave presentation because he presented the experience at the BC Children's Hospital where they looked very, very carefully at their appendicitis results. And they found that some of the older physicians who were not doing ultrasounds at all had a higher rate at the time, I don't want to quote the figures because I don't remember what it was, but it was more than double the negative appendectomy rate than those who believed in doing the ultrasounds plus minus a CT, serial examinations and operating during the day. They just by age groups, they fell into two completely different practice patterns. So, Uh, When they looked at their ruptured appendicitis rate, it was higher in those who waited till the morning and who had this algorithm where you did your exam, then you had an ultrasound. If it wasn't clear, you went to a CT. 
And so Dr. Blair gave a very interesting introspective on what processes they were putting into place to try and find a happy medium. Because insisting on going through all the tests for everyone, forgetting my passionate concerns about cancer, and my disclosure is I'm a cancer victim myself, I'm a cancer survivor, so I'm very sensitive to this matter. He gave a very, very thoughtful measure of the literature at that time. And uh, he pleaded for those cases that really look like appendicitis. Try and get them there in a reasonable time. And when in doubt, kind of do the laparoscopic look. So I'm not disagreeing with my colleague, Dr. Friedman, but he outlined that the literature is muddy at this time, and it certainly is. So I'm looking forward to the general surgeons, pediatric general surgeons, getting together across the country over the next couple of years and trying to give us better guidance. The, the good thing, though, I find, at least having trained in the United States, is actually we're quite different in practice pattern as far as CT scans. So whereas they are used, or during my training, were used quite liberally there. That was our first line imaging modality at my institution for abdominal pain, rule out appendicitis, was CT scan. Here, actually, it's our first line is ultrasound, and our second line is usually ultrasound. Only going to CT, though, when it's usually a complex ultrasound finding that is not interpretable, not because the ultrasound didn't manage to find an abnormality. I think the concerns about radiation that Dr. Jarvis very appropriately pointed out are increasingly common and aware. And I think also people are becoming more aware of the diagnostic accuracy of ultrasound, particularly when it does visualize the appendix. You know, sensitivity specificities are, are in the 99% for sensitivity range and, and high 90s for specificity as well. So it's a very highly useful modality that numerous studies have continuously shown us over, over the last 10 years or so. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about ultrasound. First, the, the numbers you just quoted for sensitivity and specificity, as high as 99% sensitivity? It is, although you have to be careful when interpreting the literature that sometimes they are equivocal. And so you have to be careful not to interpret equivocal as negative. So right. my interpretation when I get a report back of appendix not visualized is generally reassuring. There's good evidence that if they don't see the appendix, that means it's usually not big enough or prominent enough to be seen. However, I'm more reassured when that happens during the day by a technician as opposed to by a busy radiology resident who may not have done a lot of pediatric abdominal ultrasounds in the past. So it, it, it comes down to, at the end of the day, who conducted the ultrasound. We'll occasionally even have a reread of an overnight ultrasound by the staff who's looking at the still image and has more concerns about what was seen than was reported overnight. So it, ultrasound is a modality that is highly, very highly accurate, but really the, it all is very inter-observer and conductor dependent. I see. May I add something to that? Something that we, the practitioners, can do, and that is give the patient adequate analgesia. If it's a squirmy little worm of a small patient who will not lie still, 
give them some anxiolysis or give the parents some tools to distract them. We use a lot of nasal medazolam in our emergency to great effect. You have to distinguish between pain and anxiety. And a good dose of analgesic, anyone with appendicitis is very tender and doesn't like being poked. Anxiolysis, and that includes the way you talk to them, maybe give them a blanket to lie on so they are warm and not cold, and routinely give a bit of a bolus of fluid to fill the bladder because any tubular structures will be viewed better if the bladder is used as a window to highlight the structures. So that's what we can do to get better reports. And then secondly, folk in radiology, diagnostic imaging, are our best friends in the middle of the night. So it's uh, for us to go and present to them our clinical dilemmas and be very precise about what we're concerned about. I would just want to emphasize what Dr. Jarvis's point about analgesia. There used to be this belief that you shouldn't give analgesics to children because the surgeons might have trouble assessing their abdomen and deciding, oh, do they have an acute abdomen or not? And there's good evidence now from approximately four or five studies that I can think of that show that administering appropriate analgesia such as ketorolac or morphine does not affect the surgeon's interpretation of their abdomen and change clinical decision-making. So it not only does it probably help you, um, and I actually find sometimes it even helps with the exam a little bit, but it often will, will aid the radiologist in terms of conducting the appropriate diagnostic imaging. While we're on the topic of analgesia, studies have shown that kids are almost universally undertreated for their pain in the emergency department. Can you just give us some dosages and medications that are easy to remember quick go-to medications to give those little kids that are suffering in pain? If you don't do this every day, several times a day, I'm going to beg you to look it up. Please, please, he's going to tell you what he uses every day. You, who don't use it every day, multiple times a day, must, must, must check. Please, keep yourself out of trouble. So actually, I view analgesia starting at triage. So in, the, in a well-run emergency department, a child with significant abdominal pain should have a topical analgesic applied at triage, ideally. And that really leads to the next step, because once you put the IV in, that's going to cause pain. So you really want them to not have their first experience in a hospital along those lines be causing pain. Other options are intranasal options, um, as Dr. Jarvis alluded to earlier. But generally speaking, for the abdominal pain child who's getting an IV or already has an IV, I administer morphine as the most common analgesic that I'll give. And the usual dose is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum of 5 milligrams. But keep in mind that I don't send them after giving them a bolus of that. The bolus is usually over 10 to 15 minutes, but they should not leave your department right away and go to ultrasound where they're going to be unmonitored. So um, generally after about 15 minutes following completion of the administration, it would be fine to send them over there. Another medication that we sometimes use as well is fentanyl a little bit less sedating, and that would be a different option. And the dose for that would be one to two micrograms per kilogram. So the difference is micrograms in that sense. The other thing just to, to note is Tylenol-3 or Tylenol with codeine or codeine of any form. Generally, actually, it's been removed from our emergency department. There's good evidence that 
because of genetic variability, there are ultra-rapid metabolizers of codeine, and there are people who do not metabolize codeine at all. So the clinical benefit of codeine or any formulation containing codeine is very unpredictable. And so we don't recommend administering that at all. And even other simpler medications, which can be given at triage or at the start, would be things along the lines of ibuprofen, Tylenol, if it's more mild. So ibuprofen would be the dose would be 10 milligrams per kilogram. And Tylenol or acetaminophen would be 15 milligrams per kilogram. Okay. And how about uh, intravenous NSAIDs? Any role for those? The one that we do use occasionally would be ketorolac. Some surgeons don't like when ketorolac is administered as it has some antiplatelet activity. I've yet to see any in vivo evidence of that in the pediatric population, so I would not say it's contraindicated. Usually we do choose the other options. The dose of that is 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram. Generally, we don't go above about 30 milligrams for a dose of ketorolac. Great. Okay, let's get back to the ultrasound and, and CT. So you've decided to send your child for an ultrasound. You've given them appropriate anxiolytic and appropriate pain medications. We often get back these ultrasound reports from radiology department. They can be, as we were saying, of varying quality, depending on the radiologist and the institution. I think it's useful for us to know what the basic ultrasonographic criteria for appendicitis are. Uh, Dr. Friedman, can you just review for us what the diagnostic criteria are so that we're better able to interpret the reports that we get back? Generally speaking, an appendix that is greater than or equal to 7 millimeters in maximal outer diameter is considered abnormal or enlarged, and that would be very concerning for appendicitis, particularly if the person performing the ultrasound will say it was non-compressible, if they were tender, if it was hyperemic. They also can look at the wall thickness, and a wall thickness of greater than 1.7 millimeters is also considered abnormal and pathological, although I would say that's not uh, seen as often or reported as often where we really tend to focus on the actual maximal outer diameter. There are secondary signs that generally tend to be reported. It is reassuring when they're not there. It's a bit more concerning when they are there, particularly when they don't see the appendix, such as um, thickening of the mesenteric fat, some free fluid in the abdomen, increased echogenicity. Um, we always get a report of increased periportal echoes in the liver, which is very nonspecific, and I don't consider that a secondary sign as we see that in any inflammatory disease within the abdominal area, including simple gastroenteritis as well. Increased lymph nodes and size are often seen. However, we often see that with mesenteric adenitis as well. So the secondary signs are truly secondary signs. I would say we focus primarily on diameter of the appendix, compressibility, hyperemia of the appendix. If there's an appendicolith, sometimes they'll see the appendicolith on the ultrasound, which is very concerning in the context of a child with right lower quadrant pain, obviously. And in addition, if they see abscess formation, right, in the right lower quadrant, and I pay a lot of attention if there's any concern about thickening of the terminal ileum, right, or any sign of other bowel abnormalities, because inflammatory bowel disease is always a big challenge for us, particularly in a child who's kind of had niggling, ongoing abdominal pain over months. So there might be an iffy-sized appendix, but there are lots of signs of the rest of the bowel being inflamed. We're cautious there. So suffice to say with ultrasound in kids that the sensitivity is very high, However, that assumes 
that the kid is not obese, that the person reading the ultrasound is experienced, that the ultrasound tech is experienced, and that there's adequate analgesia and anxiolysis. In contrast to the adult with appendicitis, where the ultrasound sensitivity is not as good as CT. Uh, so I think that's important to know. Let's say, Dr. Jarvis, that you've decided to do an ultrasound for, for your patient and the ultrasound report comes back that the appendix couldn't be visualized or is, or is equivocal. Knowing that the sensitivity is very high and that uh, the next step could be a CAT scan or it could be consulting a surgeon, what, what generally are the, are the decision points that go through your mind in that situation? Sure. There, there are many. Some of them are logistic and some of them are patient-specific. So let me say patient-specific first. I get the report. I go and examine my patient carefully. I might ask a few more questions. Anyone else in the family had a difficult-to-diagnose appendix, right? Because sometimes you get these family histories where, oh, yes, his father's appendix was missed for three weeks and then he almost died or something like that. If the child is now perfectly well and I am less worried clinically, I have sent them home. I've sent kids home on a clear fluid diet to come back to emergency in 12 to 24 hours. So we've all done that. So I've said, I don't see it. It could be hiding, but there's no sign there's an abscess or any rupture. And I'm not worried clinically. This is the communication piece. So the child is better. I can send them home. The child is, mm, I'm not sure. I'm still kind of suspicious, but not sure. If I have an emergency that's going mad, there are 30 people in the waiting room, we have a flu outbreak, then I will discuss with the parents a risk, but I'm going to go for CT. If it's not that hectic, and believe me, we are always busy, but we're not out of control, then I will often just say to the family, I'm going to keep you here, watch you for another four hours, right? Or if I'm really concerned, we have a 24-hour observation unit, I might send them there, right? Those are options, but I'm not sending them home if I'm truly concerned. Alternatively, you can keep them till the next morning, repeat the ultrasound, then decide. But those are the guidelines. Either the patient looks better, I'm not as worried, or I'm still concerned keep you in emergency or put you in the 24-hour unit, repeat the ultrasound, then proceed. I'm going crazy. The family is going crazy. There's a bad family history of crazy things happening. I'm getting a CAT scan. I always get Dr. Jarvis, but um, a couple nuances that I might do a little bit differently. I agree in the patient. Number one, just to clarify, equivocal. So an equivocal ultrasound to me implies there's no secondary signs, and essentially it's equivocal because the appendix was not seen. So it's a kind of equivocal slash indeterminate in that sense. So in that sense, I agree with Dr. Jarvis. You go back to the room, you reassess your child, you recheck your biochemical parameters. This is where some of the blood tests and inflammatory markers do help a little bit. If those are normal child as well, I agree with sending home. If on the other hand, I go back in the room, child is not well, admin is impressive, 
I'm not happy with that, then generally speaking, I would consult the surgeons. If the admin was on the fairly mild side, but the laboratory investigations reveal a white count of 20 in ESR, if that was done of 50 or a CRP that's significant elevated, then once again, I would not be sending that child home. That's where they do play a role for me and probably consulting the surgeons is what I would do. What we generally do with these children is, unless they're clear-cut acute abdomen um, and it's more in the tender but we're not sure exactly stage, observation plus repeat imaging, as Dr. Jarvis was saying, is what we do. I do involve the surgeons so that they can see them early on and reassess them as part of our reassessment plan, often six or eight hours later, so there's serial examinations involved. And then I, I tend to usually do a repeat ultrasound. There's some evidence um, that we've actually published from SickKids showing that the second ultrasound the next morning is usually actually done during daylight hours by someone who's fresh and by a technician. And if the disease has progressed, you will usually see the appendix. So usually, actually, I rarely end up doing a CT scan on any of these children. I wouldn't say never, but very rarely, because the repeat ultrasound, if it still doesn't show the appendix, your child's exam hasn't gotten worse, and it's been 8 or 10 or 12 hours by that point, then it's highly, highly unlikely appendicitis. That's awesome. I, to be honest, I mean, you learn something new every day. I had never even thought ever of doing a repeat ultrasound. I, so that's, uh, that's a great learning point there. Our, actually, our department of radiologists are very happy to do it. Actually, in fact, often at night, that'll be the kind of the bottom line. Clinical correlation required repeat in... Uh, six to eight hours if necessary. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, I can imagine a day where you'd pick up the phone to the radiologist and say, I'd like to do a repeat ultrasound 12 hours after the first one, and they'd No, they'd they're, they're, happy to avoid, they're happy to avoid the CAT scans. They're, they're on board. I think it's in everyone's best Great. interest. Patient, parent, emergency department, surgeons, radiology. Let's say, God forbid, you do go to a CAT scan. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. If you do go to CAT scan, I know that the adult literature says that a plain CT for appendicitis in particular is just as good as CT with contrast in terms of its negative predictive value and positive predictive value. In kids, in what situations would you consider giving IV contrast for your patient who you're thinking might have appendicitis? From my experience and reading the literature, I believe it's still very institution-dependent with very little evidence actually to guide any healthcare practitioner as to what the optimal method of imaging is. Given the lack of evidence, if one thinks about the discomfort of rectal contrast and how you're trying to get a often young child, it may be a three, four, five-year-old, if that's the child who's being imaged, to sit quietly through a rectal contrast CT, you're probably not helping your chances of getting optimal imaging. So actually at our institution, we don't employ rectal contrast. I do know historically, anecdotally, some in the United States still do rectal contrast, but in general, people have moved away from it, feeling it's adding limited value. Oral contrast is usually given for these CTs along with IV most commonly. I see. And do your radiologists do all that contrast because they're trying to rule out alternative diagnoses to appendicitis? Is that the main reason? Or do they actually believe that they can see the appendix better with the contrast? It's often to look at the bowel in general, to get a better look at everything in the abdomen, because we don't do a limited right lower quadrant CT, Mm -hmm. um, which I believe is what is often done in adults. We do a full abdominal pelvic CT based on the fact that their abdomens are often quite small anyways. And so you need that whole area 
And once you're CTing them, that's generally wise to do it once as opposed to find nothing in the right lower quadrant, but you still have an impressive exam or your reason for going to CT usually is fairly impressive in the first place. So uh, getting an answer and a diagnosis is probably the, the optimal approach. Right. So in the end, it, it is the it is the radiologist's decision whether they're going to use contrast or not. But I think it's important for us to educate ourselves to know when it's really indicated and when it isn't. I mean, in, in the very young child or the very elderly patient, there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be an alternative diagnosis there. You know, my take on, on all the adult literature, and if you put all of this together, is that for an otherwise healthy person between the ages of, say, 10 and 60, that they're really, if you're specifically looking for appendix and you really don't suspect anything else, that I think you really should fight to get a plain CT, you know, considering that the IV contrast has all the potential allergic complications and prolongs their stay in the emergency department. But when it comes to the elderly or the immunocompromised or the very young child where there's a high chance that there might be an alternative diagnosis that they could pick up with the IV contrast, then, then I think it's reasonable to, to add the IV contrast. Generally speaking, the kids that are undergoing a CT scan actually are not straightforward right lower quadrant roulette appendicitis because I would say it's very rare, at least at our institution from my experience now, that they're not at least going through two ultrasounds. And generally speaking, that means we're, 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 we sorted out appendicitis in that respect. It's usually when there's an abnormality on one of the ultrasounds we're not sure if this complicated is, a, is primarily a PID, if it's tubo-ovarian, is it a perforated appendix, or, or another mass or something else in the adding that's being detected. So generally speaking, as I was saying, it's not our primary modality. So we rarely are doing it. doesn't mean never. Rarely for roulette appendicitis. It's a more complex approach than that usually, which is usually why we end up using contrast as well, because we're not just looking at that right lower quadrant. You know what? It all comes down to communication between professionals. If your CTs are being done by technicians at home, you, the emergency physician, have to phone the radiologist and call at home and have a telephone consultation equal to equal asking for advice and guidance because each hospital has its own routine for CTs abdomen. Right, And oftentimes, we're at fault in emergency. We send down CT abdomen and rule out appendicitis. If you're in an institution where that means just the right lower quadrant or where 14-year-olds are treated as an adult film because some, some hospitals say, well, post-puberty, everyone goes the adult route, you're going to get a small window. And those kids end up, if they're transferred to us eventually, getting the repeat studies, which then, uh, you know, the radiation dose is magnified. Mm -hmm. So your radiologist, your diagnostic imaging specialist should be your best friend. Moving on now to decision rules or risk scores for pediatric appendicitis, there have been three that have been published. One is the Carbanda score. The other one is the pediatric appendicitis score by Samuel. 
And the third one is the Alvarado score, also called the Mantrills score. Some of these scores have been shown to actually decrease CT use, which sounds pretty good to me, considering the discussions that we've just had. What is your take on these scores for pediatric appendicitis? Should we be using them in our clinical practice? And if so, how? You know, I think scores in general, when well done and well derived, can play a role in all of our medical decision making, and we all have a lot to learn from them. I think scores in particular are useful for people who see fewer children. So when you're not as used to the presentations of appendicitis, when you're not examining them every day and getting the histories and physical examinations, that's when scores can play a big role. It doesn't mean if your score is below a certain threshold on any of these scores that one cannot or should not go to imaging if one suspicion is high enough. Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit similar to the discussion of the CBC. Um, the white count can be helpful, but not in isolation. And so when you look at these scores, they are all useful. They all actually have very common clinical features, somewhat clinical biochemical features, although often the cut points differ slightly, or whether one uses the absolute neutrophil count or the total white blood cell count, the principle is once again the same. And given that their sensitivities and specificities are generally good, but not great, you know, for example, I believe the sensitivities have been varying for tests such as the Corbanda score between 65-70% to the low 90s. You know, so if you're in the 90s, good, but probably still not good enough. And so it in isolation it should not be used in that sense. Okay. Could you just run through for us some of the features that most of these scores incorporate into their decision making? Sure. The features are, are those that are typically considered in kids with appendicitis with points assigned to them. And then each score has a different cut point above which the likelihood of appendicitis becomes more significant and high enough to get imaging. And actually, most of the scores advocate for going straight to the operating room if your score reaches a certain threshold as well to decrease the imaging unnecessarily and delay to operative time in some children. But common features are history of right lower quadrant pain, nausea, migration of the pain, trouble walking, rebound or percussion tenderness, particularly in the right lower quadrant. The Carbanda score incorporates one of his other studies with um, an ANC of greater than 6.75, actually being the biggest driver in that score as far as a marker of uh, appendicitis. You know, the Samuel score incorporates similar features but uses anorexia as well, presence of a temperature and migration of the pain, which, as Dr. Jarvis mentioned earlier, can be very hard to elicit, particularly in the very young children. I really want to emphasize that this is a guide only. They will tell you that the lower end, you almost certainly don't have appendicitis, but most of them report the occasional case of appendicitis with score of two. And you almost always have appendicitis if you're in the top two digits of the score used. Mm -hmm. But again, you can still have no appendicitis. So really we want to emphasize that this is the whole picture and there is nothing that's solid enough to hang your hat on. Let's move on from the diagnostic workup of appendicitis. Let's say we've got our patient who 
we think has appendicitis. Let's talk a little bit about the treatment. We've talked a bit about analgesics. What about antibiotics for appendicitis? In what situations do kids with appendicitis require antibiotics? Well, the, the most clear-cut is the child in the emergency department who has clear-cut peritonitis. So in an unwell child with peritonitis, I don't wait for further imaging, diagnostic testing. Um, that child you know, often appears septic as well and needs empiric antibiotics right off the bat. Once we're talking more about we know they have appendicitis, the child who has perforated appendicitis requires antibiotics, even if they are stable. Current management strategies for perforated appendicitis usually are non-operative. So it's usually antibiotics, initially intravenous, after that oral. And depending on the loculation or abscess size location, usually a drain is put in by interventional radiology sometime in the subsequent 12 hours or so after uh, starting antibiotics. And they may never have an appendectomy because that's another big debate. If you've perforated, you've been treated, you have no abscess formation, there's some surgeons who do not believe that you should have an appendectomy because things are pretty tacked down in there and it's a more difficult surgery with an increased risk of perforating normal bowel because things are tacked down. Hmm. So the debate goes the whole way through. Right. So that's for the patient with a perforated appendicitis with or without an abscess yeah. or the patient who's obviously very sick, septic. Uh, what about the run-of-the-mill appendicitis that's picked up on an ultrasound, for example, and the kid is not septic? So generally speaking, the run-of-the-mill appendicitis now, we administer perioperative antibiotics. It's usually on call to the OR and goes up with the patient given just before or at the time of arrival in the operating room is generally the current practice. And I believe that's currently um, the practice recommended by the American Pediatric Surgical Association based on their review of the literature to date on the treatment of appendicitis. I see. So for the emergency doctor, we should know to give antibiotics in the case that the patient looks very ill or septic, and if they have any peritoneal signs, and if they're found to have a perforated appendix. Okay, and, and Dr. Friedman, at SickKids right now, what's the standard antibiotic regimen for belly sepsis? So uh, we currently still use ampicillin, gentamicin, flagyl, kind of triple antibiotics for children who have evidence of perforation or, or are systemically unwell in the emergency department. Even though, and you can, one can question the, the evidence behind the triple therapy versus more some of the more modern single or double agent regimens as well, but that is currently standard of care. One last thing I'd like to add before we wrap up our discussion on appendicitis is to step back for a moment and to think about the most common diagnoses for kids who present to the ED with belly pain in order of prevalence. And they are gastroenteritis is number one. Number two is respiratory tract infection including otitis media, pharyngitis, and pneumonia. Number three is UTI. Number four is constipation. And number five is appendicitis. In fact, aside from gastroenteritis, upper respiratory tract infection is the most common diagnosis written at the bottom of the chart for missed appendicitis in kids. This is because on any given day, a kid might have a runny nose. And when they present with fever, and they happen to have a runny nose at the time, the doc assumes that they're related and makes the diagnosis of URI. So remember to examine the bellies of kids who present with fever and have a runny nose. You might pick up an appy. 
That about wraps it up for part one of this episode. Next month, in part two of this episode, we'll be rounding out our discussion on pediatric abdominal pain with a discussion on gastroenteritis, intussusception, and many more pearls and pitfalls when it comes to pediatric abdominal pain. Until next time, take it easy.